Spread this virus and contaminate thousands of people just by virtue of close contact. So this forces us to, I think, much more globally to think about global cooperation, to think about responsible government, and all of those things, both international cooperation and responsible government, are core features of healthy democracies. They're not core features of authoritarian regimes, and that's why I think one of the lessons, one of the takeaways now, is that democracies matter much more than they ever did for our planet. That's Nader Hashemi, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Nader Hashemi on pandemics, democracies, and dictatorships. Today, fear stalks the globe. The Grim Reaper is taking a heavy toll. The coronavirus pandemic has led to many thousands of deaths and tremendous economic dislocation. And in this climate of fear, authoritarian regimes from Saudi Arabia to Hungary, from Russia to Turkey, and from Iran to the Philippines, use the crisis as a pretext to curtail civil liberties, expand police power and surveillance, silence their opponents, settle old scores, muzzle the press, and jail dissidents. We see this pattern in different shapes and forms among tyrants and would-be tyrants. In India, Modi, the Hindu nationalist prime minister, has thrown journalists critical of his rule in jail. Kashmir remains under military control. And in Washington, the U.S. president has declared, I have the ultimate authority. I call the shots. How can people in democratic societies effectively respond to the current crisis? Our guest today is Nader Hashmi. He's director of the Center for Middle East Studies and teaches Middle East and Islamic politics at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of Islam, Secularism, and Liberal Democracy and co-editor of Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. He spoke from his home in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, to members of the Islamic Renaissance Front and the Islam and Liberty Network, both based in Malaysia. And now, Nader Hashmi. The question that I want to pose tonight, are authoritarian regimes or authoritarian governments better equipped than democracies to handle the many challenges that flow from a global pandemic. Um, But let me just say something about this particular historical moment. You know, three months ago, no one knew or or had ever heard of the coronavirus disease or COVID-19. Now this virus has spread to almost the entire globe. It has crashed economies. It has broken healthcare systems. It has filled hospitals and empty public spaces. It has separated people from their workplaces, from their friends, and from their family, and has disrupted modern society on a scale that we've never witnessed before. It's difficult to appreciate the magnitude of this particular historical moment because we are in the middle of it. But I do believe this is a transformative moment in uh, global history. The coronavirus pandemic really has changed our world, and there will be no going back to the world that we once knew prior to the emergence of this virus. 
Yesterday, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said that the coronavirus outbreak is the biggest challenge facing the world since World War II. He said that it could bring a global recession that has no parallel with the recent past, and you just have to look at the numbers around the world to appreciate this point. We were warned about this uh, coming pandemic um, for several years. Um, Experts in the field have been saying for a very long time that something like this type of pandemic was inevitable. In recent years, there have been hundreds of health experts who have written books, essays, articles, um, given speeches, warning of the possibility of a crisis like this. Just to single out one person, Bill Gates has been telling anyone who would listen that um, a global pandemic was inevitable. In 2015, if you look at his famous TED Talk that's available on YouTube, he was incredibly forward-looking and prescient in warning about this particular crisis. If only we had listened to him back then. And fundamentally, I think this crisis that we are facing challenges fundamental core assumptions about the world that we live in, about international affairs. It forces us to rethink key concepts such as what really constitutes international security. It forces us to rethink the concept of sovereignty. It forces us to think about, in a much more deeper way, the idea and the notion of international cooperation, the value of human rights, particularly in the context of what constitutes good public health. And also, this crisis forces us to rethink fundamental notions of good and responsible government. Writing in the Guardian newspaper recently, David Runciman has written, quote, This crisis has revealed some very hard truths. National governments really matter, and it really matters which one you happen to be living under. Though the pandemic is a global phenomenon and is being experienced similarly in many different places, the impact of the disease is greatly shaped by decisions taken by individual governments. And so this forces us to turn our attention to the broad relationship between politics and this pandemic. And so I want to say at the outset, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a physician, I'm not a virologist. My training is in political science with a focus on the Muslim world, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, focusing on questions of democracy, authoritarianism, human rights, and struggles for democracy in the Muslim world. So I want to really grapple with this question, a fundamental question in in politics, the, the relationship between democracy, authoritarianism, and notions of good government. Recently, um, the director general of the World Health Organization, when he was commenting on this global pandemic and the outbreak of the coronavirus, publicly stated that China deserves special praise and recommendation for its response to this crisis. As the new disease grew into a global health crisis, Chinese officials have quarantined entire cities in a matter of days, suspended travel, closed schools and universities, shut down businesses, and imposed strict travel uh, restrictions on who could leave their homes. In many ways, China has sort of set the standard here to what other countries around the world have emulated in terms of dealing with this pandemic. Um, They've leveraged their formidable surveillance powers to scale up contact tracing, which is an essential measure in stopping the outbreak. And even Donald Trump, 
of all people, has tweeted in praise of China's, quote, great discipline in dealing with this crisis. World health officials have repeatedly praised China's response. Um, there was a conference in Munich in February where Michael Ryan, who's the executive director of the uh, World Health Organization's emergency uh, response program, argued and publicly stated that the people of China today feel protected. Quote, they feel like their government has stepped in aggressively and quickly to protect them, he said. Now, during public health crises, governments in the United States and other liberal democracies are often forced to consider various measures that require health checks, that require limiting movements, instituting quarantines, and this often infringes on individual liberties and human rights. Thus, it is sometimes argued and believed that in moments of a pandemic, liberal governments are not as effective in responding to these moments of crisis. They allegedly, liberal democracies that is, allegedly have weak governments because they have to respect popular choice and legal procedure. Some people have suggested that perhaps this recent global crisis reveals that authoritarian governments are better equipped than democracies to meet the challenge of a pandemic. And this is of course related to a much broader global debate that has been taking place in recent years about the value of democracy and perhaps um, the appreciation or a reconsideration for more um, authoritarian styles of government. The China model is sometimes discussed, particularly in parts of the Islamic world, as perhaps a better alternative to democracy. Western democracies, after all, today are in deep crisis. There's lots of political polarization, lots of confusion, lots of uncertainty. And just look what's happening right now in the context of this global pandemic. Look what's happening in some prominent uh, Western liberal democracies, where um, the four top countries in the world now who have produced the largest number of cases and deaths are in Western liberal democracies. Italy, Spain, France, and the United States top the world in this category. Well, comparatively speaking, China's numbers, despite a much larger population, are much, low, are much lower. Now, of course, Donald Trump's mismanagement of this crisis obviously does not reflect positively on democracy or the ability of a democracy to respond effectively to a pandemic. And some people have argued China, in, in, in contrast to the United States, has really shown some significant global leadership by containing and stopping the outbreak after it first emerged, by sending medical aid and um, uh, testing kits to countries around the world, by sending surgical masks and other forms of personal protection equipment. In many ways, some people have argued China is now demonstrating global leadership that we need more of than a leadership coming from, from the West, from the United States and Europe. Perhaps some people have argued that one of the lessons of this moment of crisis is the China model. And perhaps we need to rethink uh, the China model and rethink the values of authoritarian government during times of crisis. Take a second look, in other words. Now, uh, this narrative that I've just constructed, let me state very clearly, I strongly disagree with this claim. Opponents of democracy and human rights around the world would very much want us to buy into this narrative. I think it is deeply flawed, deeply disingenuous, deep, deeply ethically weak, 
And um, it would be a danger for our world if more countries were to buy into this story. Let me explain why. Um, good public health practice doesn't simply require political control. It also requires transparency, public trust, and social collaboration. Habits of mind, in other words, that allow free societies to better respond to pandemics. Citizens of democratic nations can reasonably expect a higher level of honesty, candor, and accountability from their governments as opposed to citizens living in authoritarian regimes. American citizens, for example, today are benefiting from the objectivity and the accuracy of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC. This is a leading public health institute in the United States. It's federally funded, but it's independent, and it publishes regular, accurate, and independent information about infectious diseases that can be a critical source of information for citizens trying to figure out and understand what's going on. The CDC has a long, distinguished history in terms of being a forum for communicating between and with American citizens over these questions of pandemics and infectious diseases. Thus, reliable reporting has enabled epidemiologists in the United States today to accurately and honestly, without government interference, to predict this disease's trajectory it has helped research develop treatments and vaccines uh, and to respond to the transmission of these diseases in ways that can protect society at large without having to fear the executive power coming in and trying to manipulate the data. In contrast, consider the case of China. In 2003, when we had the SARS outbreak, China tried to cover up that story when it first emerged. And it's also trying to do the same thing in the context today of the coronavirus crisis. Local authorities in China deliberately suppressed early reports coming out of Wuhan of some unknown virus that had, that had emerged, missing an early window that responders had to stop this infectious disease before it spread around the world. Although researchers in China did eventually release the virus's genetic sequence, um, there was a lot of an attempt to cover up what was happening. Uh, there was an attempt to detain doctors, to silence whistleblowers who tried to discuss the disease and tried to sound the alarm when the evidence started to emerge in late uh, December of last year. Aggressive action just a week earlier in let's say early to mid-January, could have cut the number of infections in China by two-thirds, according to a major recent study, whose authors include experts from the Wuhan Municipal Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Another study has found that if China had acted earlier, had acted responsibly, it could have controlled the outbreak and it could have prevented 95% of the uh, disease spreading um, to the entire world. One of the doctors who was in Wuhan at the time who tried to sound the alarm was Li Wenliang. He tried to warn friends on, social, on the social media service WeChat um, about this crisis that was emerging, but he was immediately uh, summoned before the uh, authorities of the Chinese Communist Party, and he was avowed to public, and he was forced to publicly disavow his concerns. He later died of the complications from the COVID-19 virus. And when asked on a BBC interview 
about Lee's treatment by the Chinese authorities. A Chinese diplomat shrugged it off, dismissed it, and tried to blame it on local authorities. But this is precisely the point. China's cover-up of the virus was not the result of some system malfunction. In an authoritarian regime, the state covers up events and stories that it doesn't like as a deliberate policy. This is by design. This doesn't happen by accident. The language of authoritarianism, the language of fear, and the language of force is part of the DNA of authoritarian regimes. In the context of a global pandemic, as we are seeing today, the results of an authoritarian regime relying on those policies can be catastrophic for our entire world. Let me just sharpen the point and ask the following question. It's very difficult to imagine a similar cover-up taking place in a democracy, a healthy democracy, that somehow the state would try and arrest doctors, throw them in jail, imprison them, torture them, uh, and force them to come on television to publicly confess that what they were discovering was somehow a hoax. But this happens routinely in authoritarian regimes. But let me say something, I think, a bit more foundational to the question of global pandemics. And that revolves around the concept of public trust, or sometimes the concept is known as social trust and its relationship to pandemics. During a public health crisis, a government's credibility is a vital national asset. To slow the spread of a virus, the government must convincingly inform and instruct the public. And to do so, it must inspire trust among citizens. Trust that it, the government is following the scientific data, um, that is acting out of the best interest for the entire population, and that's enforcing measures that will help, help keep the public safe. Trust fundamentally depends on transparency. If governments appeal, appeal to be lying, concealing the truth, withholding information, their credibility can quickly crumble and they will be unable to mobilize citizens collectively to do the right thing to deal with the crisis. Public trust is also, um, it has many dimensions. It's vertical and it's horizontal. So there's one form of public trust that is fundamentally a relationship between the state, the government, and its citizens, but there's also horizontal trust, how citizens view each other, whether they're fearful of each other, whether they trust each other during a moment of crisis. That's an important level of trust that can easily be broken if governments are not responsible in doing the right thing. So recently, in the context of this debate on global pandemics, the prominent American political theorist Francis Fukuyama has uh, weighed in on this debate. He wrote an essay in The Atlantic magazine where he argued that we have to discard simple dichotomies when thinking about governments and their response to global pandemics. He argued that the major dividing line in effective crisis response will not place autocracies or authoritarian regimes on one side and democracies on the other. Rather, there will be some high-performing autocracies and some with disastrous outcomes. There will be also, in a similar way, some governments in democracies that perform relatively well and some that perform relatively poorly. The crucial determinant, Francis Fukuyama argued, in performance is not the type of regime, but the state's capacity. And above all, 
the trust in government. Let me repeat the core aspect of his argument. He says the crucial determinant when we look at global government responses is not the type of regime, democracy or authoritarianism, but whether a particular government has capacity to do the right thing and to instill trust in its citizens. Now, um, I want to respond very briefly to this argument because I fundamentally agree that regime type doesn't matter. I think when this crisis is over and when we examine the behavior of democracies in the world and authoritarian regimes in the world to this critical moment in our, that we are facing, I think the empirical evidence will suggest, all things considered, that democracies have performed better than authoritarian regimes in managing this crisis and in saving lives. Yes, there will always be outlying cases. There will always be the case of Singapore. There will always be the case of Qatar. There will always be the case of the United Arab Emirates. But these, I think, are non-representative of most authoritarian governments and how they have responded to this global pandemic. Point number two, speaking of social trust, in general, when we think about the concept of social trust or public trust, there is typically much higher levels of social trust in democracies than in authoritarian regimes. And this is because of the concept of political legitimacy. Regimes and governments that are legitimate in the eyes of their citizens usually have much higher levels of social trust than in authoritarian regimes. And thus, in that sense, regime type does profoundly matter when we think about social trust as an important value. Now, Francis Fukuyama, if you read his essay, he's very skeptical about the case of democracies responding better than authoritarian regimes, um, largely based on the example of Donald Trump and the United States. And I think this is a problem with his argument because he's using an example of the United States, which today is a deeply flawed democracy. I would argue it's a declining democracy, and he's trying to make broad generalizations about Donald Trump's response as a representative of democratic government for his argument. I would argue, rather than looking at Donald Trump and the United States as an example of a democratic response to this global pandemic, what about South Korea? What about Taiwan? What about Germany? What about Canada? I think those government responses, all of them much more democratic than the United States, does challenge the claim that it doesn't really matter whether it's a democracy or it's an authoritarian regime. It's really about state capacity. Um, some people now will argue, well, what about the huge loss of life in Italy, Spain, France, and the United States? These are leading democracies, at least historically speaking. And um, look at the huge catastrophe that is unfolding as I speak. I would argue that um, the loss of life and the number of cases would probably be much greater had these governments been authoritarian rather than democratic. It's still too early to tell. I think there's going to be a lot of careful examination of all of these examples moving forward. But uh, I wouldn't simply look at the data right now and look at the countries that are experiencing high levels of reported cases and high levels of death. I, in fact, I would argue that the reason why there's high levels of cases being reported in these countries is because there's a lot of testing and there's a lot of an attempt by government to get involved and figure out how big of the problem is, which is actually a positive reflection on democracies. It's not really a criticism. Now, Francis Fukuyama also ignores one of the key lessons 
from the 1918 pandemic. If you're following what's happening today, I strongly recommend that you go and revisit what happened roughly 100 years ago when we had another pandemic that seems to be similar to what we're experiencing right now. About 100 years ago, about 500 million people, one-third of the planet, became infected with a form of influenza that is sometimes known as the Spanish flu or as swine flu. The number of deaths that occurred in 1918 as a result of this um, pandemic was roughly in the range of 50 million people worldwide. In the United States, the number of people who died was 675,000. That's more than the number of people that died in World War I, World War II, the Korea War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and the war in Afghanistan. So it was a major pandemic. And in a major book on this topic that was a New York Times bestseller called The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history, the author, John Barry, argues that one of the key lessons from this moment of history is that it is absolutely essential for governments to tell the truth. Truth is directly linked to public trust. The way to do that is to distort nothing, to put the best face on nothing, to try and to manipulate no one. And when he was asked, the author was asked, about the consequences uh, of lying back in 1918, because that's what was happening. In 1918, the U.S. government was still in World War I. It didn't want to acknowledge the, um, uh, the evidence that was emerging that there was a major pandemic on its doorstep. There was a lot of lying and distortion, and the consequences of that lying were actually very catastrophic. It led to more deaths. So John Barry, when he was asked uh, about the consequences of lying in the context of a global pandemic, he, uh, he, he responded with the following comments. Lying was a disaster. People lost faith in everything, in their government, in what they were being told, in each other. It just isolated people even further. If trust collapses, then it becomes everyone for themselves, and that's the worst instinct in a, in, in, in a crisis of this scale. Um, in most disasters, communities come together, and that was the sense in some places in the United States but not in others. And he says, in my book, I wrote about the gradual disintegration of trust at every level of society and the cascading effects it had on social breakdown that resulted from it. But he also adds that there are some practical consequences. For example, the lack of trust made it harder to implement critical public health measures in a timely way because people just didn't believe what they were being told by their government. And by the time the government was forced to be transparent about what was going on, it was mostly too late. Hundreds of thousands of people had died. The virus was widely disseminated. And so the lack of trust, the lack of honesty, the lack of telling the truth costs lives. Getting back to our discussion about governments, truth-telling, honesty, transparency are not core features of authoritarian regimes. Democracies are much better at telling the truth for obvious reasons. Free press, civil society, respect for free speech and inquiry, the existence of an opposition party. Finally, with respect to this debate on authoritarianism and democracy, let's not forget a fundamental truth about the crisis that we are facing right now, known as the coronavirus pandemic. We are in this mess in large part because of the policies of a deeply authoritarian regime that lied, that distorted, 
that covered up and that continue to hide the truth about the origins of this virus and the number of people that have been contaminated by it. I'm talking specifically about the policies of the Chinese Communist Party and its notorious ruler, Xi Jinping. Had China not lied, not arrested doctors who tried to sound the alarm and who tried to contain this virus, arguably, we would not be having this conversation tonight. Our world would be much different. So thus, regime type profoundly does matter when it comes to dealing with global pandemics. Let me now quickly turn to the case of Muslim majority societies. Um, I recently got my research assistant to look up the data on how Muslim societies have been affected by the coronavirus. And he looked at all of the members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, and listed the data in terms of the number of reported cases of infected people and the number of deaths. And several things stand out when you look at this particular data. Number one, Iran is way off the charts. It's very high in terms of the numbers of reported cases and the number of deaths. Iran currently has about 50,000 reported cases and about 3,000 dead. Most people who know Iranian politics realize that the figure is probably much higher given the nature of the authoritarian regime in, 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 in Tehran. But those are the official figures. 50,000 cases, 3,000 dead. The other thing that stands out is the next country that registers cases and deaths is much lower, um, is Turkey. Turkey officially has about 15,000 cases of infections, about 277 deaths as of today. Malaysia is third, about 3,000 infections, 45 people who have died. Pakistan and Saudi Arabia are much lower, about 2,000 reported cases and about two dozen dead. Now, this raises some very interesting questions. What about the most populous Muslim-majority countries? How come they have not registered? They don't appear on the global data for coronavirus infections or deaths. Indonesia, Bangladesh, India, Egypt, Nigeria. The numbers are almost infinitesimal. If you look at the data on a global scale, it's as if you know, these countries have almost been unaffected by this virus. And I think the only explanation that one can come to is actually quite a tragic and catastrophic explanation. It means that the level of testing has been very low, that the virus is just beginning to spread, and that what we're seeing today in the United States, in Italy, in Spain, in France, is going to hit the countries of the global south of the developing world, many of the Muslim-majority uh, societies, in catastrophic ways in the coming months. There's a lot to be concerned about here, because I think uh, the worst is yet to come to these countries. You're listening to Nader Hashemi on pandemics, democracy, and dictatorships. This is Independent Alternative Radio. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Our website is alternativeradio.org. Again, our website alternativeradio.org. 
Let me just say something in, in the end briefly about Iran. Um, and I think Iran is a perfect example of the argument that I've just outlined. The reason why Iran is in this deep crisis is fundamentally because the nature of government there, the nature of its political system, which is authoritarian, it badly mishandled this crisis from the beginning. The former health minister of Iran was sounding the alarm in late December that something was happening with China. We have to take precautions. No one listened to him. And the reason why no one listened to him, because Iran was facing its own internal political crisis and foreign policy crises. Um, in January and in February, Iran was engulfed in a series of events related to public protests, related to the conflict with the United States, related to the shooting down of this Ukrainian airline disaster, and related to the broader fact that, you know, Iran um, suffers from an internal crisis of legitimacy. The regime does. There's been a lot of um, mistrust, a lot of questions about whether the ruling clerics have popular legitimacy. And the focus of the regime in the month of February was not on fighting this pandemic. The focus of the regime was trying to shore up its sagging legitimacy around two important events that happened to coincide in the month of February. One was the anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, which is a huge moment when the regime tries to bring people out in the streets to send a message to the world that has popular support. So that was the focus of the regime. And then around um, two weeks later, there were parliamentary elections. And the regime, again, was trying to encourage people to come to the ballot boxes after they had you know, screened most of the candidates and had created a situation where it was a very fraudulent election. So people didn't want to show up. And in fact, the Iran, Iran Supreme Leader came pretty close to acknowledging this fact when he said one of the reasons why there was such, so lo such low voter turnout in the parliamentary election was because of these exaggerated fears of a, um, of a virus. Um, and so if you look at how uh, the government in Iran has responded to this crisis, it's fundamentally a fact and it's fundamentally um, um, a, a feature of the authoritarian nature of the regime in, in, in Iran, the fact that it suffers from a crisis of legitimacy, the fact that its supreme leader went on television and engaged in a series of conspiracy theories with respect to this virus, saying that it was within the realm of the possi possibility that this virus is an American plot, an American concoction sent to Iran to subjugate Iran. He even said that there may be this unique Iranian form of virus that has been created by the United States to um, uh, uh, it, it affect Iranians disproportionately. Um, just a wild, exaggerated sort of conspiracy theories saying that we don't want foreign help and we don't want foreign doctors because the doctors might come to Iran and try and spread the virus, not contain it. And this is from the most powerful um, political leader in Iran's political system saying these things. How can you have an effective public health response when the most powerful person in your political system is engaging in outright conspiracy theories. So I think that largely explains, if you look at the response in Iran, the, the fighting between the government and the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guards over how to handle this particular crisis, it's a textbook study of how authoritarian regimes are uniquely unprepared for responding to global pandemics because their fundamental concern is maintaining political control, maintaining political power and dealing with their own crisis of legitimacy, not dealing with questions of public health, not dealing with global pandemics. You know, we could talk more about what's happening in Egypt 
I think Egypt is a disaster. Uh, just to cite one thing that's relevant in Egypt, uh, there was a very credible journalist working for The Guardian, Ruth Michelson, who wrote a very good report on what was happening in Egypt with respect to um, this coronavirus. She was arrested, interrogated, and kicked out of the country. And that gives you a sense of um, you know, what's happening in Egypt. No surprise there. You know, General Abdel Fattah LCC is behaving like we would expect him to behave, to sort of control the narrative, to control what's happening, blame the coronavirus on the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, these are things that you hear on Egyptian television. Um, so let me just conclude then very quickly with uh, some uh, comments. Um, I think this is a critical moment, and I think it's a very dark moment, not just because of the, you know, loss of life that we're seeing, um, and that is expected to increase as we move forward in time. But I think politically speaking, one of the negative consequences that we're going to see around the world is governments are going to try and absorb more power into their own hands using the argument that this is a national emergency, that we need to consolidate power, that we need to create large and powerful, stronger states where power is concentrated in the hands of government because we have to deal with the crisis. Um, and I think this is a very bad omen and it's a very bad development for those people who believe in democracy and accountable government. We're seeing the signs of this already. Earlier this week, one of the most notorious authoritarian leaders in Europe, Viktor Orban in Hungary, has led the way. He rammed through parliament legislation that allows him to rule by decree for an indefinite period of time, and also it allows him to criminalize anyone who allegedly is spreading false information about the coronavirus, and they can be sent to jail for five years. And so this type of power grab is going to be, I think, used by other authoritarian regimes invoking very similar arguments. In Cambodia recently, a new law was proposed Again, along similar lines that there's a national emergency and the Cambodian government requires unlimited and unrestricted emergency powers. And, you know, if you follow what's happening there, human rights groups are saying this isn't, this spells the end for any prospects for democracy in Cambodia. Um, it's the type of power grab. Human Rights Watch issued a statement that this is a dictatorial set of policies that we haven't seen in Cambodia since the time of Pol Pot. I'm quoting from Human Rights Watch. And other countries in the world are going are gonna to use this. We're seeing it in Israel. I predict that Donald Trump, as we get close to the November election, if there's a similar crisis, is going to try and use this moment to either delay the election or manipulate this crisis to perpetuate his own political rule. One final comment. The UN Human Rights Office issued a, a statement recently on the coronavirus that said uh, the following. Over the last years, we've witnessed the adverse consequences of the marketization and privatization of a number of essential services, including healthcare and public health. This is allegedly done under cost-saving economic arguments, but as we're seeing right now, this type of privatization uh, focusing on economic indicators as opposed to public health has catastrophic consequences precisely during moments of um, global pandemics. I think one of the lessons here that we have to learn is that it's not simply sufficient to focus on economic growth, high GDP numbers or high GNP numbers, and think that's the way forward. 
obviously we, we are learning a very hard lesson that no one is safe in our contemporary world in the age of the current coronavirus. You're only as safe as the weakest person on our planet who can spread this virus and contaminate thousands of people just by virtue of close contact. So this forces us to, I think, much more globally to think about global cooperation, to think about responsible government and all of those things, both international cooperation and responsible government are core features of healthy democracies. They're not core features of authoritarian regimes. And that's why I think one of the lessons, one of the takeaways now is that democracies matter much more than they ever did for our planet. Thank you. Uh, straight away, I'm looking into the questions being asked by the uh, attendees. So far, there's three questions. I will start with the first question. What is trending now is that there will be a new normal post-COVID-19. What do you envision this new normal to be? Currently, there are also issues faced by certain societies with no access to houses. How to stay home then? Clean water, soap and food, for example, asylum seekers, refugees, etc. Perhaps you can comment that, Dr. Nadir. It's a very good question that doesn't have an easy answer. I read a fascinating piece in the context of uh, social distancing and someone made the observation that in the context of many developing societies around the world, this author was talking about India, she made the argument that social distancing is a luxury that most people in the developing world can't afford because to social distance yourself or to stay at home for many people around the world um, means that their children don't eat food. Um, and so uh, for many countries, I think this, the, what's happening right now, this new normal, if you will, where we in the United States, you know, just sort of stay at home and work on the internet. Um, that's um, a function of, um, you know, advanced economies with high levels of, you know, economic production and, and, and higher, you know, standards of living. But when you start thinking about the consequences of this pandemic in poor societies where people live day to day and they don't have the option of staying at home, then you're looking at a, a catastrophe, not just, not just, I mean, I'm leaving the health consequences of the pandemic aside. I'm talking about economic activity. People just can't stay at home in crowded societies and refugee camps. I mean, what does social distancing mean in the context of a Syrian refugee camp in Turkey or in Idlib province? There is no social distancing. So if the virus spreads there, that means that thousands of people will be vulnerable. Um, so I think what we're seeing here, the point that I'm trying to convey, that we are just at the beginning of a potential global catastrophe. You know, the tens of thousands of deaths that we're seeing in, in Europe now and in the United States is going to really pale in comparison if this virus spreads in um, large parts of Asia, large parts of Africa. Um, and it's also going to have this, you know, drastic economic effect where people are, are going to start to starve because they can't make a living anymore. There's no economic production and they can't feed their families. So this is going to put a huge, I think, you know, burden on governments, governments in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, in India, Pakistan, in Egypt. I mean, Egypt has a population of 100 million people now. Um, what happens when the virus spreads there? How long can people actually stay at home and quarantine themselves? A week, two weeks, but what happens after that? So I think, you know, there's a lot to be concerned about here. Um, and the prognosis, unfortunately, from my vantage point, does not look very good. Going to the next question, 
in what about countries if you could give some inputs on countries which is basically democratic countries but without such economic strength and also how public health management properly how would you foresee uh, situations in those countries well resmon was my former student and he's doing a phd in colorado at the university of colorado so thank him for his great question uh, it's a good one i think the point to be made though is that you know uh, democracies are not monolithic they're not all the same authoritarian regimes are not all the same there is a variation there is a there is a spectrum um, so I think fundamentally what Fukuyama was arguing is that state capacity, the capacity of the state to do the right thing during a moment of crisis does fundamentally matter. But social trust also matters. And usually those societies that are democratic have higher levels of trust. You can have situations where you have sort of very weak democracies. Um, and I'm not talking about democracies that simply have elections. My um, use of the term democracy is democracy at a much higher level where you do have free and fair elections, but you also have an element of social justice and social redistribution. You have basically a social safety net. You have a public health policy. You have the capacity of the government to do things properly in the moment of a crisis. So many of the, the, the democracies that Rezwan was referring to, I think are going to be very weak and unable to respond adequately, particularly if you're dealing with huge populations with the absence of good public health policies in place and options for citizens. I mean, if take Indonesia, okay, Indonesia is considered to be a democracy. It's got some problems in it, but it also has over 230 million people. What happens if the global pandemic hits, you know, um, Indonesia really hard? Is Indonesia going to be able to respond effectively when you have tens of thousands of people um, being contaminated, perhaps dying every single day? I mean, no country in the world will be able to have the health capacity to respond to that type of crisis. So I think those countries are going to be in really difficult situations. It's a good point. I think it forces us to sort of think about different types of democracy and different types of authoritarian regimes that are able to sort of respond to these particular uh, global crises. Do you see that when it comes to dealing with specific issues which relates to health, which we may think that it is important to have someone who has that credibility from health uh, expertise to brief and talk about this, or it is actually should be dealt by someone which is more having a national figure, meaning the leadership figure of a president or a prime minister or things like that? So in Canada, for example, I mean, I'm, I was born in Canada and I have Canadian citizenship, so I follow the politics in Canada very carefully. What happens in Canada is the prime minister comes on every day and gives an update on what's happening. And then he turns over the microphone to the leading health specialist in the country to give an overview of what's happening. Because there's a perception that because the prime minister comes from a political party, it's better that a leading health specialist who is beyond politics update the country on what's happening and, and sort of, you know, give advice on how to handle this particular moment of crisis. Um, so the, the point about social trust during moments of pandemic fundamentally relies around the ability of a government to guide, to organize, and to mobilize society in the right direction 
to follow a set of policies that will help resolve the crisis. If you have a, a government in power that lacks social trust, that is viewed as being corrupt or partisan or really caring about the interests of one segment of the country, one ethnic group, one religious group, then people are not going to listen to the advice and to the recommendations of that government. They're going to they're think that the government is lying, most likely because it has a track record of lying. Um, you're not going to be able to do the things, particularly in terms of you know, mass mobilization, to observe social distancing, to stay at home, and to you know, follow a game plan, a strategic game plan that can get you through this crisis. So I think very much that, that's the relationship between trust, government, and pandemics. It's the ability um, you know, to, to, to have that capacity for people to view the government and to believe that the government is following scientific data, it's pursuing policies in the best interest of everyone, not just the best interest of the people who support that prime minister or that president. Um, uh, and so that's why I think you know, having some public health official who is not you know, connected to any political party being the lead spokesperson updating the country, advising citizens on what to do is the much better preferred option. Um, you know, one of the problems that we're facing right now in the United States is you have Donald Trump, who is the president, who is, um, you know, he's, he's half the country likes him, half the country hates him. Luckily, be, you know, you still have, and this is, I, you know, I never thought I would praise Donald Trump, but I'm going to do it right now. He has organized a, a, a coronavirus task force, and he has two very prominent scientists and medical physicians who come every day to the press briefings and answer questions. Dr. Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, who are you know world experts in the field, and they're the ones who are sort of informing the president. And when they speak, they speak with a sense of authority, honesty, integrity that everyone in the United States, regardless of where they stand politically, tend to listen to those people because they're considered to be, you know, nonpartisan experts. Uh, if we try to see the situations going to continue for a more longer term, in some ways it also relates to we need to kind of um, accept the situation of freedom, liberty and democratic rights may not necessarily be the same as before the spread of the pandemic. So looking into such situation, one thing is for citizens, for people, how do we need to adapt with the situation while at the same time emphasizing the importance of democratic rights and the basic civil liberties, while at the same time, how do mainly democracy advocates should respond to this if you are thinking about the situation could be happening in a longer run. Okay, it is a time for definite compromise or that we need to rethink about how do we actually promote democracy uh, in such situation, especially in preparing for uh, if things could happen again in the future besides then the situation of COVID-19. Yeah. <clears throat> no, those are good questions. Um, you're right that the predictions are that this crisis is not going to end anytime soon. And even if the numbers start going down, the predictions are that there, there might be multiple waves of this coronavirus coming back. And until we get a vaccine, this could last for many months. If not, um, it could be cyclical until next year. So how do democracies respond in this particular moment? How do citizens respond at this particular moment of crisis? I think if governments try to consolidate power 
try to roll back rights, try to postpone elections, try to invoke emergency sort of procedures claiming that we have a national crisis and we can't have elections anymore or we can't have debates anymore or we can't have a free press anymore, then I think citizens have to fight back. Now, if you get a situation where there is calamity and catastrophe, where thousands of people are dying every week, when things are really catastrophic, then I could understand that during those unique moments, when you have hundreds of thousands of people whose lives are on the line and who might be dying, I can understand emergency procedures taking place during those unique moments. But I think there are ways of handling those crisis moments by insisting on regular intervals of review, of accountability, to not allow this to just drag on forever. But let's say in a government wants to sort of use emergency powers to deal with a crisis, it has to be for a limited period of time. It has to be subject to parliamentary review. It has to be subject to, um, you know, some sort of checks and balances. It just can't be what we're seeing today in Hungary or what we're seeing today in Cambodia where a government says, look, I just want all the power and I'm going to use it and there's no limits or checks or balances. So I think one has to be very careful to not let the little democracy that we have slip away and allow governments to manipulate this moment, to consolidate power, because this is a a perfect opportunity for those authoritarian leaders, political parties, to manipulate this moment, to consolidate power in the name of a national emergency, but really with the goal of trying to preserve their own political careers. So one has to be very vigilant and very careful. Um, I think it's also an opportunity for democracy. And it's an opportunity for democracy in the sense that the way that countries are going to manage this moment of the pandemic is by having good public health, good public health investments, procedures, options for citizens, societies that I think have invested in those things are going to be able to manage this crisis better than others. And that demands accountability from government, resources developed to make sure that people can have the access to healthcare that they need. You know, in many ways, I think Malaysia, I don't know the state of healthcare in Malaysia, I think it's probably much better than other parts of the Islamic world, but in large parts of Africa, large parts of Pakistan, Egypt, where you have huge populations and you have uh, corrupt governments, you're not going to have the health options that you need. And so that can be a demand for citizens to sort of insist that any future government worry about providing basic health care for its citizens. And that could be part of the democratic demands and the democratic goals that citizens should be aspiring for in the context of their own struggles for democracy. Thank you to everyone. Stay safe. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. That was Nader Hashmi on pandemics, democracy, and dictatorships. He spoke from his home in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Nader Hashmi is director of the Center for Middle East Studies and teaches Middle East and Islamic politics at the University of Denver. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Due to the current crisis and wanting to do our part in solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering this program at no charge. To get your free transcript copy of Nader Hashmi on pandemics, democracies, and dictatorships, 
Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. And our website is alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with the Iraqi Oud virtuoso, Rahim Al-Hajj, performing the traditional mode, Maqam, Hijaz. to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Hello. Is anybody anybody out there? there? Calling anybody on this frequency. This is Helicopter 40 Alpha. Tune in to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, and Treaty 7 lands. Hello! As the hard driving rain, you be tired. 